Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The U.S. Supreme Court rules that the all-powerful tech giants can remain relatively unaccountable for what people post on their sites. The lead starts right now. Twitter and Google not responsible for what folks post on their websites, not even if it's a terrorist organization like ISIS posting pro-terrorist propaganda. Does today's Supreme Court ruling mean that the Wild West online just got even wilder? Plus, her office said that she had shingles, but Senator Dianne Feinstein and her office never mentioned encephalitis and swelling of the brain. What a source tell CNN today about the senator's previously undisclosed health condition and what that means for the tens of millions of citizens in California. Plus this afternoon, the Disney DeSantis feud taking a new turn as the entertainment giant just announced it is scrapping a billion dollar plan to build a major complex in Florida, costing Florida thousands of high paying jobs. How much do they blame Governor DeSantis? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today in our tech lead with major legal victories for Twitter and Google today in lawsuits that legal experts had warned could have upended the Internet. The justices unanimously decided Twitter will not have to face a lawsuit accusing the company of aiding and abetting terrorism when they allowed tweets created by the terrorist group ISIS. The court also dismissed a similar case against Google, which had been accused of aiding and abetting terrorism by allowing ISIS-related videos to be posted on YouTube, which Google owns. Critics argued that platforms need to be held accountable for what people share on their sites, but supporters of the tech giants say exposing companies to more liability could make it difficult for many websites to even function. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Steiner joins us live now. And Jessica, let's start with the Twitter decision. It was a unanimous decision. What was the court's uh, reasoning? Yeah, unanimous, written by Justice Clarence Thomas. And it really centered on this legal theory, Jake, of aiding and abetting. So the statute that this family of this person who was killed in an ISIS, ISIS attack in Turkey, the statute they've sued under does allow lawsuits against people or entities that aid or abet an act of international terrorism. So that was the legal theory that the court seized on. But the court really saying here that the family just didn't prove its case because social media companies didn't do anything actively. They just merely passively let people post on their platforms. So Justice Thomas writing this in the opinion, saying it might be that bad actors like ISIS are able to use platforms like defendants for illegal and sometimes terrible ends. But the same could be said of cell phones email or the internet generally. So the court tying it back to other forms of communication. What was interesting, though, they also dismissed one of the plaintiff's arguments about algorithms. Hmm. These families had said, well, you not only let them post, but then you actively suggest content via your algorithms. And the court really dismissed that notion. They said that it's just simply part of the infrastructure of these social media companies. Interesting. Uh, 
Jessica, the court also dismissed this lawsuit against Google, but that was just a brief order. Tell us about that. Exactly. So it was stipulated between the parties in the Twitter case that if the court didn't find in their favor in Twitter that they would dismiss the Google case. So this was a huge sigh of relief for big tech companies because by dismissing it, it means that the court did not even touch that Section 230 issue. And what's that issue? Well, the family in the Google case had said that Section 230 should be totally chipped away. And, of course, that creates um, broad exceptions of liability for tech companies that allow third parties to post. So they, they're not responsible for any of the content that third parties post. And tech companies were very concerned that if the Supreme Court weighed in on Section 230, especially if they chipped away at those protections, it could really upend the way the Internet is run. So the Supreme Court totally skirting that issue, dismissing the Google case and leaving Section 230 at least for now completely intact. I will mention the Judiciary Committee Chairman, Senator Dick Durbin, he uh, put out a statement. He said, well, you know, the Supreme Court didn't do anything on Section 230. Now Congress needs to. Hmm. We'll see. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss this with Axios senior media reporter Sarah Fisher, media commentator Kara Swisher, and former Homeland Security official Juliet Kayam. Kara, um, obviously big victories for tech companies. Um, are, yeah. they, are they victories for the people who use Twitter and Google? Well, this isn't the right case to bring before it. I mean, I think what Sen- uh, Senator Durbin said is correct. This is Congress's job to do something about 230 since they passed 230. And so I think co- uh, Supreme Court was like, this is not our deal. And in fact, it was unanimous. And so all the justices agreed. And in fact, uh, Justice Kagan had said that. It's like, this is just a court. We're not exactly technology experts. Um, and so they, they they didn't want to come up against 230 because they do believe it's a congressional um mandate to do something about this if they really believe this is a problem. Sarah, do you think this ruling, this decision makes it nearly impossible for individuals to sue tech companies for what is shared on their sites? It makes it very difficult, Jake. And the reason being Section 230 is written very clearly. And so the rule uh, the role, excuse me, of the Supreme Court is to interpret these laws. And so by basically saying that this is not our job, we're not going to interpret it, it's clear and punting it back to Congress. The only way that a consumer would be able to sue a tech company for something that was posted is to Kara's point if the law were to change. And given Congress's, you know, previous history of getting tech bills signed, especially this Congress, which is with a split House and a split Senate, I just don't see it happening that this law changes, which would invite, you know, an opportunity for people to be able to sue tech. Juliet, let's talk about the national security implications of this, because the court ruled that just because mm-hmm. the, these sites host general terrorist speech, right. including from actual terrorist groups like ISIS, that, that does not create legal responsibility for specific terrorist attacks. How, how much do terrorist groups use media sites, social media sites uh, to recruit? A lot. And they're not just recruiting. There's a whole infrastructure that terrorist groups are taking advantage of. And so, you know, part of this, and I agree that this is Congress's problems, not the court's problem. Part of this is that Section 230 was written at a time when everyone thought, oh, these social media platforms, they're like, um, they're, they're just blank slates. It's like just producing ink. So you're not going to go after the ink production company because because uh, someone wrote something bad or some terrorist used the ink. What we've now seen is that they're more like a, a theory of law, which is called the dram shop rules, which are essentially they're they're like uh, bars that are serving drunk, dangerous people and keep serving them. And then those people go out and they do bad things. And the law has recognized that the bar can't say, oh, we're just serving alcohol. We're not responsible for anything. And I think that's a way for Congress to think about it is that these 
platforms are being used, not just for recruitment, for fundraising, but for something as important. It gives the individual, the so-called lone wolf, a sense of identity, a sense of support, a sense that they will be supported by the, the pack. There's no lone wolves on Twitter. There's no lone wolves on YouTube. They have their community and the social media networks are providing the bar for them. To- yeah. And Kara, how strict are mm-hmm. the rules on sites like YouTube or Elon Musk's Twitter about what kind of terrorist speech can mm-hmm. be posted and what cannot? Well, this has been the problem for a long time. They've been very random about how they enforce their rules, even against people like Alex Jones. And so they keep making decisions and then changing them and then not enforcing them. And so, you know, and then it just goes on and on. And you have to remember, this is a very small group of people making these decisions. And they certainly could take this material off just because they feel like it. It's a private company. They just don't do it or they feel nervous about it. They get attacked by it. And so it gets sucked up into these First Amendment arguments of which it's not necessarily related. Um, and so it becomes a mess. And and if they miss one thing, and, the, and they often do, it can result in a problem. And so, again, these are a very small group of people making these decisions. And even though they do have rules, they're not enforced. And it's sort of like having no stop signs all over a city. Just people just blow them all the time. So, Sarah, you got to give credit to the U.S. Supreme Court for knowing their limitations at the very least in terms of Justice Kagan saying, like, you know, she didn't put it this way, but, you know, we basically we we barely know how to use a mouse. Um, But do you think Congress is up to speed uh, when it comes to being able to actually revise or create new legislation? It's a good question. I think Congress has a long way to go in figuring out what to do. You have very progressive folks who are saying we should abolish Section 230 altogether. But the problem is, Jake, there's no alternatives that have been put forward that people agree would be able to sort of supplement that loss. To Kara's quick point, though, on whether or not tech platforms are making these decisions right, I completely agree with her. But one of the challenges is to us or to people in America, we might consider one group to be a terrorist group spousing terrorist ideals. And then another group, another country might not agree that that group is necessarily affiliated with terrorism. And so that also gets to the heart of why these are such difficult decisions. These are not just American companies that are looking to uphold American ideals around terrorism and our viewpoints. They have to operate globally. And sometimes those things don't align. All right. Thanks to this brilliant panel. Appreciate it. I could talk to you three all day. Thank you so much for being here. Coming up next, the new tone from a group of hardline conservatives who may force House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's hand, just as the Speaker is saying that negotiations in the debt fight are are making progress. Plus, the response from Donald Trump's attorney to some CNN reporting, how it reveals a likely avenue for a legal challenge in the president's classified documents investigation, the investigation of him. And I'll speak with the governor of Maryland after his state tried to tackle the gun epidemic this week with some new laws and the NRA quickly responded. Stay with us. We're back with our money lead. A new gauntlet has been thrown down in that debt limit fight. The House Freedom Caucus, a bunch of conservatives this afternoon, called on Speaker Kevin McCarthy to stop negotiating with Democrats if it means anything less than the GOP's current debt ceiling Proposal. That proposal, of course, cuts federal spending by four and a half trillion dollars, although with no specifics. It blocks the president's student loan forgiveness plan, rescinds new IRS funding, toughens work requirements for people on Medicaid and repeals clean energy tax credits that are in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's part of the debt negotiation. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live for us on Capitol. So, uh, Melanie, this stance from this group of about 40 hardline conservatives, it's, it, it's not new, but now it's official. 
That's right, Jake. The House Freedom Caucus took an official position today, urging Speaker Kevin McCarthy to not negotiate with President Biden and instead to stand by the plan that the Republicans pass in the House, which would raise the debt ceiling but also enact steep spending cuts and a whole host of other demands. The Freedom Caucus put out a tweet today saying, no more discussion on watering it down, period. So, Jake, this really is a sign of the challenges that Kevin McCarthy is going to face in trying to sell any deal negotiated with the White House to his right flank, even though GOP leaders have been trying to work behind the scenes internally to temper down expectations about what a final product could look like. But he does not necessarily need conservatives in order to pass a bipartisan bill, because presumably in that scenario there would be Democrats who would vote for it. But for his speakership and his political future, Kevin McCarthy does need a healthy amount of Republican buy-in. So he is going to have to be able to walk away from the negotiating table with something that he can say is a big win for Republicans. Uh, Melanie, the timing's interesting because earlier today, Speaker McCarthy sounded pretty positive about the direction of the debt limit talks, maybe for the first time. Yeah, it was really interesting and striking, actually, to hear Kevin McCarthy say that. That signals to me that he feels pretty confident that these talks are trending in the GOP's direction. I mean, for starters, the White House is, in fact, negotiating on the debt ceiling, which they said they wouldn't do. And all the things that are being discussed, according to our sources, are Republican priorities, whether it's spending cuts, permitting reform, even some form of work requirements appears to be on the table. But I would caution but there's still a long way to go. There are a lot of details still to iron out, not a lot of time to do it, so plenty could go wrong between now and June 1st. But as of right now, a lot more optimism than we've heard in the last few days and even weeks, Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Turning to our law and justice lead, an attorney for Donald Trump is responding to new evidence that may undercut, undercut Trump's claim that documents he took from the White House uh, to Mar-a-Lago had been automatically declassified when he did it. National Archives uh, officials have informed Trump that they're set to hand over 16 records to special counsel Jack Smith. Documents that could show Trump and his team were aware of the correct way to declassify documents, which does not include just, quote, thinking about it, unquote, as Trump has claimed. Here's how an attorney for Donald Trump responded to our news on CNN. He is aware of a bureaucratic process that can be used. But at the end of his presidency, he relied on the constitutional authority as commander-in-chief, which is to take documents and take them to Mar-a-Lago while still president, as he was at the time, and to effectively declassify and personalize them. He talked about declassifying them, but he didn't need to. Here to discuss CNN's Jamie Gangel and senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Jamie, the, the process that Donald Trump's lawyer right. described there, is that how it works? No. Uh, you also don't effectively declassify something. There, There is a process. Yes, presidents have broad authority. But I will tell you, I think former President Trump's lawyer may have just uh, done him a disservice with an admission, uh, again, that he knew how the process worked. Uh, let's just take a look back for a minute Jake, at how, you know, how those documents got to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and when they were found, there were hundreds of documents. There was chaos. They were in boxes. When the president's lawyers went to the archives, eventually to find out what was in the boxes, they did that because nobody knew what was in the boxes. So you can't effectively or otherwise, you know, wave a magic wand, 
think it over, and suddenly all these documents are declassified. It just doesn't work that way. Ellie, if the special counsel does decide to ultimately pursue charges against Donald Trump in this case, will the defense he's using now, what you heard from Jim Trustee and what you've heard from the president, will it hold up in court? I don't think so, Jake. I think it's a dubious defense, and here's why. There is a constitutional school of thought that holds that the president is not just the head of the executive branch, he is the executive branch, and as such, he holds unilateral authority to declassify at will, and he does not have to follow any particular checklist or form that may have been formatted by bureaucrats. There's some legitimacy to that. But then it becomes a factual question, which is, did the president actually use that power? Did he actually declassify while he was in office? And to that end, there is just zero evidence that the president actually did declassify. As Jamie said, you cannot declassify by magic or by telekinesis. And in fact, to the contrary, there's quite a bit of evidence that the president did not do any sort of automatic declassification. We've seen 18 different former White House officials who've come forward, some by name, some anonymously, who have said that that claim is, and I quote, laughable, ridiculous, or BS. So it's an interesting theory, but it doesn't hold up on the facts. And Jamie, uh, you point to several several parts of this letter from Trump's legal team that, that don't add up. Tell us. So this is a letter that was sent to the House Intelligence Committee by former President Trump's lawyers. And again, this was just last month. They are pointing out in this letter, let me read part of it, that when the boxes were sent uh, to NARA from Washington, that Trump never even reviewed them. So, quote, however, due to other demands on his time, President Trump subsequently directed his staff to ship the boxes to NARA, the archives, without any review by him or his staff. If you don't know what's in the boxes, it's very hard to say you declassified them. There's uh, another part of uh, the letter where the lawyers say we've seen absolutely no indication that President Trump knowingly possessed any of the marked documents or willfully broke the law. Here it goes on. Rather, all indications are that the presence of the marked documents at Mar-a-Lago was the result of haphazard records keeping and packing by White House staff in GSA. President Trump has directed us to immediately notify DOJ of the discovery of marked documents at Mar-a-Lago, and we have faithfully done so. That seems very clearly to be an admission that oh, we didn't know these documents were there. So again, how do you declassify them if you don't know they're there? Ellie, the National Archives could hand these 16 documents that uh, are suggested will show that Trump did actually know the classification process, the declassification process. They might hand them over to, to Special Counsel Jack Smith on May 24th, unless they are prohibited uh, to do so by a court order uh, do you think Trump's team is going is to try to challenge this in court and, and bring a court order? I think they're very likely to do so, Jake, because they've done so in virtually every circumstance that's come up before this. There was a moment in early 2019 when Donald Trump went out to the White House lawn and said, quote, we're fighting all the subpoenas. He meant it. He has gone to court claiming executive privilege more than any other president in our history. He has lost in court on executive privilege more than any other president in our history. And the reason he keeps losing is because executive privilege is designed to protect legitimate policy and strategy discussions, military policy, diplomatic, that kind of thing. The Supreme Court has said, generally speaking, the privilege does not keep important evidence in a criminal case 
out of the hands of prosecutors. And that's why Donald Trump has lost on executive privilege on everyone from Mike Pence to Mark Meadows to the Trump organization itself. And I think he'll reach a similar result if he challenges this one. All right, Ellie Honig and Jamie Gangel, thanks so much. Coming up next, a special request from a Navy officer's wife to President Biden, specifically timed with his G7 stop in Japan happening right now. In our world lead today, President Biden kicked off his truncated visit to Asia to meet with fellow world leaders at the G7 summit in Japan. The leaders of some of the world's largest economies are expected to try to keep a sharp focus on China's growing aggression globally and on Russia's brutal war against Ukraine. But as President Biden shakes hands with fellow presidents and prime ministers, one American family is urging President Biden to address another issue close to their hearts. They're asking President Biden to press harder on Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kushida to release an American Navy lieutenant who is in prison in Japan. Uh, Lieutenant Ridge Alconis has been behind bars in Japan for nearly 300 days, part of his three-year sentence for what Japanese courts call the, quote, negligent driving deaths of two Japanese citizens in May 2021. Uh, Lieutenant Alconis says he suffered from acute mountain sickness as he was driving down from Mount Fuji with his family, and he became unconscious behind the wheel, and that led to the tragic, deadly crash. Joining us now for an exclusive interview from Japan is his wife, uh, Brittany Alconis. Brittany, good to see you again. Quickly, if you can, remind our viewers why you think this three-year sentence is unfair and undeserved. What happened on May 29th, uh, 2021 was absolutely a tragedy. Um, However, he was mid-conversation with my daughter when he lost consciousness. He couldn't be awoken. A crash happened. That didn't wake him. He did not fall asleep. He was not negligent. And so... I understand what happened was a tragedy. He said from day one that he wanted to make sure the family was taken care of, but he has also maintained that he was never tired and he did not fall asleep. And there's no evidence to suggest that he did. So your husband sent you a letter a couple of weeks ago that you've shared with us. I want to read part of it. It says, I'm not doing that good. The walls and bars seem to be making my cell even smaller as of late. I get sick to my stomach thinking about whether 30-minute meetings through a window is helping or hurting the kids and you. I feel closer to an animal than a human being right now. Just, just awful. Tell us about your reaction when you read that, if you would, Brittany. Um, I was heartbroken. You know, I've, I've been with Ridge for 12 years. Um, he's really good at doing really hard things things that people just don't want to do without complaint, with a good attitude. Um, And to hear his spirit just kind of breaking, um, it it breaks my heart and it also, it makes me mad. Yeah. How how are your kids? Um, You know, it it depends on the day, Um, but they're hurting. You know, they uh, they try to make sense of this. We talk about it all the time. But my son asked me the other day, he said, Mommy, the president, you said the president's getting daddy home. Then why isn't he home yet? Um, and, you know, if if daddy suffered an emergency, why is he in jail? And those are questions I can't I can't answer. You know, when my daughter says, Mommy, I, I just want to hug daddy. 
I can't do anything to fix that. Um, but they're good natured kids. They're wonderful. And, you know, they're doing the best they can. So you, you, that's a reference, obviously, to the brief discussion you had with President Biden after his State of the Union speech in February. Um, he promised you uh, he wouldn't give up. And you have praised the White House for engaging with you. Is, is the Navy helping at all? Is the Pentagon? No, absolutely not. They've, they've done nothing but work against us. In fact, you've accused the Pentagon of conducting a whisper campaign uh, in an attempt to, to convince some people that your husband, in fact, got a fair trial in Japan. And you say that you, you even have some emails that would prove Pentagon officials are pushing this narrative and they're lying. Um, but you're not going to release those emails now. Tell us more about this. You know, we have the emails outlining the uh, status of forces agreement violations that were committed uh, in the investigation Letters have been sent out to members of Congress. Um, we've gotten a hold of some of those. People have given them to us and have said, hey, this is what DOD is saying. It's not quite in line with what you're saying. I've taken those letters into CNFJ legal, gone over them point by point, confirmed with them that they are false. And yet uh, these things continue to be said. And I just, I do, I understand that the alliance with Japan is important. Um, I do not believe that it is so weak that we need to allow Japan to unjustly imprison our naval officers. Brittany Alconis, thank you so much. Uh, Keep speaking out, keep talking. We're going to keep having you. We're going to keep talking about Ridge's case. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jake. Coming up next, the NRA's new lawsuit against the state of Maryland as lawmakers tried to restrict the number of guns uh, flooding into their state. Maryland's governor, Wes Moore, will be here with his response to the NRA lawsuit. Stay with us. Internationally, gun violence is the top public health concern in America. That's according to new Axios-Ipsos polling, which saw the issue surge ahead of the opioid crisis. And as the U.S. endured more than 220 mass shootings this year, So far, that's more than there have been days. In response, at least in part, Maryland's governor just signed several gun safety measures into law with new criteria for who can carry firearms in public, uh, new restrictions as to where permit holders can bring their weapons, including polling places, preschools, hospitals, and stadiums. In response to that, the National Rifle Association is now suing Maryland's Democratic Governor Wes Moore, uh, calling the law unconstitutional. And Maryland Governor Wes Moore uh, joins us now. Governor, in the wake of the Supreme Court's June 2022 decision, which was a ruling basically against New York's concealed carry law, and it basically expanded the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Um, Because of that, the number of people now allowed to carry concealed guns in public in Maryland has tripled. Your new law is in response to that. The NRA lawsuit challenges the idea that Maryland can prohibit legal permit holders from bringing their guns into a vast array of public and private spaces. Do you think your law will hold up in court, even if it's challenged all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court? I do think this law will hold up. We were working in partnership with the Office of the Attorney General, who believes that this law will hold up. But also importantly, these are common sense gun laws. They're common sense, common sense gun laws that are simply saying that people should not be allowed to bring firearms into a nursery or into a government building. You know, we pass common sense gun laws that are saying that someone under the age of 21 should not be allowed to purchase a firearm. 
common sense gun laws that's saying that a person with a, with, with a mental illness and a history of violence should not be able to purchase a weapon. We are dealing with, as you said, the number one public health concern of people in our state. And our state is saying enough. And we're not going to wait for the federal government to be able to make adjustments and, and be able to keep our people safe. Public safety is my number one concern. And we are going to keep the people of this state safe. So the law will clearly make the process to, to legally carry a firearm more complex. Uh, and when a permit's approved, uh, carrying the weapon into some locations will just be off limits. An NRA official in Maryland said this, quote, you know who isn't going to do all of this to get a permit and who isn't going to worry about where it's legal to carry? Criminals. This law will only prevent law-abiding people from exercising their rights, unquote. How do you respond to that? I, I respond by simply saying that we are going to address the issue of gun violence full stop in the state. And if you look at the budget that we proposed, we we proposed and we have now in our budget uh, an increase of one hundred twenty two million dollars that's going towards local law enforcement, that we have historic funding for mental health supports, that we are taking a full and a full all of the above approach when it comes to dealing with the issue of gun violence and public safety. It's the reason that we put a core focus on on restricting and eliminating ghost guns, making them illegal in our state. That we made historic funding in doing things like enhanced license plate readers and coordination between local jurisdictions so we can keep these illegal guns out of our neighborhood. But it is also saying that we cannot stop with just simply having uh, having an approach that's dealing with illegal guns. We've got an issue of violence within our society and being able to have background checks on who is purchasing weapons and knowing why and being able to know that people should not be able to bring firearms anywhere they want to. And our state is something that our state is not going to stand for. We have an all the above approach in the way that we're dealing with public safety. And this is a component of it. So most states that have um, strict gun laws have lower than average rates of gun violence. But the advocacy group, uh, Every Town for Gun Safety, ranks Maryland as having among the nation's strictest gun laws, but nonetheless above average gun deaths. Um, why do you think that is? Where is that disconnect? And do you think your new law will address that? Well, it's true. I, you know, I, I've I, I've been governor for uh, for for five months, and here's what I know: for the past eight years, we have seen how the homicide rate in the state of Maryland has nearly doubled. We have seen how the the, the rate of of non fatal shootings in the state of Maryland has nearly doubled over the past eight years. We are dealing with something that is a a almost a decades long challenge and problem in the state of Maryland, and something that I ran on that we are not going to let sit pat. Now that I'm governor and I know that we have already taken aggressive measures of being able to increase coordination. We've taken aggressive measures of making sure that we are getting and keeping these violent offenders off of our streets. We're taking aggressive measures and making sure that we are tracking and eliminating the problem of illegal guns within our neighborhoods. And so we know that the all of the above approach in the way that we are dealing with public safety, supporting mental health uh, and supporting mental health capacities, making sure we're doing more investments in our schools and our job training programs, that it's not just simply going to be about sentencing or gun laws, that the way you're going to deal with public health and the way you're going to deal with public safety in our society is by making sure you are dealing with all, not just the root causes, but all the root challenges that our society continues to face. The U.S. Supreme Court this week um, uh, just uh, uh, refused uh, to intervene uh, when it comes to Illinois' ban on what they call assault weapons, semi-automatic weapons. Um, That's the latest example of justices kind of just like staying away from Second Amendment related disputes. Do you, th- do you think that that will be how the court looks at your law? 
Well, I, I think the, uh, you know, you look at the state of Maryland where, you know, we have had uh, in, uh, a banning on, on assault weapons and, and, and weapons of war inside of, inside of neighborhoods. And it actually has had a distinct impact uh, that we've seen. But we also know that we are still dealing with that challenge where just a few weeks ago uh, in the city of Baltimore, we had a, uh, a, a young person who was who was killed by an assault weapon. Mm-hmm. So we know this is still a very real challenge that we face in the state of Maryland. But the thing that we do know and, and, uh, and is, that, is that we are going to be aggressive when it comes to making our communities safe. We are going to be aggressive when it comes to keeping these type of weapons out of the hands of people who do not need them and in places where they do not need to be. And so we'll be working with, our, with the Office of the Attorney General to not just ensure measurements of, of constitutionality, but also working with all of our local jurisdictions and law enforcement to make sure that we have proper enforceable uh, mechanisms that are going to keep our community safe. All right. The governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, coming to us live from Annapolis. Thank you so much, sir. Good luck. Thank you, Jake. Coming up next, the clues found in a remote rainforest giving search crews hope that four children may be alive after a plane crash more than two weeks ago. Turning to our world lead in Israel today, a sea of flags, most with the Star of David and a few with far-right symbols in a region on edge after a period of intense clashes. Between Israelis and Palestinians, Sinan Chadas Gold reports from a mostly peaceful Jerusalem today where some, some of the violence was unfortunately directed at journalists. By the thousands they came, nearly all in white, waving Israeli flags. For these marchers, this is a celebration of when Israel took control of East Jerusalem from Jordan in the 1967 war, giving Jews access to their holy sites in the old city. For Palestinians, it marks the beginning of the occupation of East Jerusalem. But in recent years, the march has also become more like a right-wing nationalist rally and a pretext for violence between Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, who make up most of the population in this part of the city. While most marchers were peaceful, some groups sang songs about getting revenge on Palestinians, erasing their names. Others going even further, chanting Mayor Village Burn. They were emboldened by the presence of right-wing government ministers, like National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, who marched alongside them through the Old City and to the Western Wall. Thousands of police showed how tense the situation was even before the marchers started. Using heavy-handed tactics to clear the route, including on senior CNN correspondent Ben Wiedemann. What are you doing? The marchers, too, targeted the press, throwing rocks, bottles, and cans at our position, forcing reporters to cower for cover. But Jerusalem Day has seen much more serious violence than this. It was in 2021, as the thousands of Israelis made their way to the old city, that the Palestinian militant group Hamas fired rockets toward Jerusalem, setting off an 11-day war. Hamas and Islamic Jihad threatened the march again if any of their unnamed red lines were crossed. But this year, most of the drama stayed on the ground in clashes and scuffles and not rockets in the sky. And Jake, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in a speech today essentially taking credit for the reason why he says militants didn't target the march, saying that Israel dealt heavy blows on the militant groups last week and that he believes the message, quote, was received. But we'll see how long that lasts. Jake. All right. That's Golden Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, new evidence of hope that four children 
may be alive after a small plane crash 17 days ago in a remote part of the Amazon rainforest. Here's why there is reason to hope. Discoveries of scrunchies, plastic wrappings, even a, a baby bottle. CNN's uh, Stefano Pozovan is in Colombia, where this massive search is currently underway. A glimmer of hope. Colombia's president tweeting that four children on board a single-engine aircraft that crashed in the jungle on May 1st had been found alive and well. Rescuers using scatter debris to trace them, but on Thursday, the president's tweet was deleted, saying the information, quote, could not be confirmed, government officials blaming poor communication. And the head of the country's Children Welfare Authority later saying she was, quote, very confident about their rescue. She said, quote, we're still missing that very, very last link that confirms all our hopes. Until we have the photo of the kids, we won't be stopping. We're not underestimating the information we received, but we want to confirm directly ourselves. The Colombian Armed Forces have been using dogs to search for the children. The plane had taken off from the remote area of Araraquara, bound for San Jose del Gaviare. Rescuers from the military and local indigenous communities aren't giving up hope to bring home the little ones as they follow a trail of small objects such as hair scrunchies and baby bottles. Even bringing in a recording of the grandmother to at least one of the children to help in the search. But efforts are difficult given the rainfall in the dense parts of the jungle. Once the rivers start to swell and things like that, you have areas that are rapids, it makes it more difficult to navigate. Obviously, as I said, the rivers are kind of the highway, so they're going to be using those waterways to get to and from places, obviously to extract uh, the survivors out and things of that nature. The Colombian Aviation Authority say they found another three bodies inside the small aircraft, but those have yet to be recovered. And Jake, uh, CNN has just learned minutes ago that those bodies, the three bodies, have indeed been recovered and have just arrived in the hands of uh, Colombian authorities. Uh, they were the bodies of the three adults on board of that flight, uh, two indigenous passengers and the pilots. Still no words uh, on uh, the whereabouts and the status of those four little children, uh, which makes this frantic search even more frantic, Jake. Yeah. Stefan Pozovan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next... Disney's big announcement this afternoon, they are scrapping a billion-dollar plan that could have created 2,000 high-paying jobs in the state of Florida. How much is this about the state's governor, Ron DeSantis? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Montana becomes the very first state in the United States to ban TikTok from everyone's phones, not just government devices. How does that state even begin to enforce that? Plus, the U.S. Supreme Court ruling that involves a photograph of a print of Prince and a famous Andy Warhol piece, why this decision could impact every piece of American art. And we are leading this hour with two major stories in our politics lead. Senator Dianne Feinstein's office confirming that she suffered from previously undisclosed health complications, including swelling of the brain while battling shingles. The 89-year-old senator has only been back on Capitol Hill for one week after being out since February. We're going to have more on that in a moment, but we're going to start in the state of Florida, where it looks as though Governor Ron DeSantis is caught in the mousetrap in a way. Disney just announced it is scrapping plans to build a new $1 billion campus outside of Orlando that would have brought 2,000 high-paying jobs to the state. The Florida governor has, of course, repeatedly targeted Disney, which is the state's largest taxpayer, 
over the last year. That's after Disney publicly criticized that Florida law that limits classroom conversations about gender identity and sexual orientation, originally from just K through 3, although I believe it's now K through 12. CNN's Natasha Chen is digging into this story for us. And Natasha, Disney CEO Bob Iger, he threatened to cancel the development. And I guess it turns out that Iger was not bluffing. Um, what is Disney specifically saying about why it's pulling this project? Well, Jake, I received a memo from a Disney spokesperson today written by the Disney chairman of Parks Experiences and Products, uh, Josh Tamaro, not naming DeSantis, but I do want to read you part of that statement because they give this reason. Given the considerable changes that have occurred since the announcement of this project, including new leadership and changing business conditions, we have decided not to move forward with the construction of the campus. This was not an easy decision to make, but I believe it is the right one. And so there were already some of these 2,000 people who already started to move to Florida. Uh, They said that they would work in individually, case by case, uh, for their options, including the possibility of moving back here to Southern California, where those employees will remain in Burbank in the Los Angeles area. Uh, uh, You use the word mousetrap. That is actually also the terminology used by uh, the Trump campaign on Twitter. Uh, They they posted about this as well. Um, Now, to make a point of from this memo, DeMauro also wanted to mention that they will still invest $17 billion and create 13,000 jobs at Walt Disney World over the next 10 years. So really saying that they are committed to this flagship resort. This comes actually on the same day of a separate announcement that they're shutting down their Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. Uh, It's only been open for about a year, a premium experience where guests spent two nights voyaging through the galaxy. And uh, that was a surprise decision to close that down. So a lot of uh, different messages coming out at the same time today, Jake. Well, that sucks. I wanted to do that. Um, Has Governor DeSantis responded at all to Disney's move about this $1 billion, 2,000 job project being pulled? Yes. uh, A spokesperson from his office uh, responded to our colleague Steve Contorno with this statement saying Disney announced the possibility of a Lake Nona campus nearly two years ago. Nothing ever came of the project and the state was unsure whether it would come to fruition. Given the company's financial straits, failing market cap and declining stock price, it is unsurprising that they would restructure their business operations and cancel unsuccessful ventures. Now, of course, local leaders have also spoken up about this, uh, including the Florida Democratic Party chair and Nikki Freed, who uh, said that Florida just lost 2,000 jobs and millions of dollars um, in revenue because of Ron DeSantis's, quote, unhinged personal vendetta against Disney. So a lot of different voices speaking up about this there in Florida, Jake. All right, Natasha Chen, thank you so much. Now to our other top political story, Senator Dianne Feinstein's office confirming that she suffered from complications from singles, including encephalitis or swelling of the brain and Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which affects your facial nerve. CNN's Manu Raju and Dr. Sanjay Gupta are with us. Manu, um, what are you hearing from sources and from Senator Feinstein's office about her diagnosis? 
Well, Senator Feinstein's office has not provided many details about her condition ever since she was gone in mid-February, suffered the shingles, uh, had shingles, and the 89-year-old Democrat was gone for several months, didn't return until last week, and there still has not been many much information. Then the New York Times reported earlier today that she did have broader complications related to shingles, encephalitis, and the Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. I heard from a source familiar with the matter who afterwards who confirmed the senator had that those di- was diagnosed with those two issues. Then she talked to our colleagues on Capitol Hill, Kristen Wilson and Jessica Dean, and she denied having any broader complications, simply saying she had a very bad flu. Then after that, Jake, her office put out a statement confirming the New York Times report, saying the senator previously disclosed that she had several complications related to her shingles diagnosis. Those complications included Ramsey-Hunt syndrome and encephalitis. While the encephalitis resolved itself shortly after she was resolved, released from the hospital in March. She continues to have complications from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Now, there have been questions for some time about Senator Feinstein's health. She passed up being the president pro tem, which is in line to the presidency because of uh, her condition. She also was pushed aside by Democrats and not become the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee because of questions about her fitness to serve in that position. But when I asked senators today about whether they believe she has continued to fit and serve as senators, they sized up that question. We're all human, and we all have health issues, and right now she is performing as a United States Senator, doing her job. If you think she ought to resign, and you think that these things that they're all saying uh, anonymously are true, then by God, go to Amazon and buy a spine online and stand up and say it perfectly. Uh, be a man or be a woman. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and Jake, uh, as I asked the Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, uh, right out of the Democratic lunch today, whether or not he was aware of Feinstein's diagnosis, diagnosis, he declined to comment. And the number two Democrat who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, told me that he was not aware of any of these issues, Jake. Yeah, and as you, as you alluded to, um, Manu, there, there have been questions about her cognitive abilities for several years now. Um, Sanjay, how, how difficult is it to diagnose encephalitis? And, and what does that mean? What does Ramsey-Hunt syndrome mean? Yeah, so it, it can be challenging to, to diagnose encephalitis. Encephalitis basically means inflammation of the brain. People often hear meningitis. That is inflammation of the layers, the outside layers of the brain. But with encephalitis, you're actually getting swelling in several different areas of the brain. Now, it, it can be challenging to diagnose. Usually you have some suspicion. As Manu mentioned, she had diagnosed shingles. Shingles can sometimes lead to uh, uh, encephalitis, inflammation of the brain. You have several tests that you'd start to do to try and figure that out. Imaging tests, for example, uh, EEG, electroencephalogram would be another test. And even a lumbar puncture, where you'd actually look at fluid that bathes the spinal cord and the brain and see, look, is the virus in there? Are there indications that there's a swelling and inflammation around the brain? That's how you'd make that diagnosis. Sometimes it's hard. People have fever. They may have headache. Sometimes those symptoms will resolve, but people may be left with memory sort of difficulties. So it can be challenging, Jake. And what about Ramsey-Hunt? What, what is that? So, so when someone has shingles, and a lot of people know what shingles is, typically it's a virus that you may have had chickenpox when you were a child even. The virus doesn't leave your body. It stays sort of hanging out around nerves. 
at some point in adult life, it can get reactivated. That's shingles. If that reactivation occurs around the face, and specifically around the facial nerve, and I think we have an image here of what the facial nerve sort of, yeah, see the yellow area there, the facial nerve. If that becomes inflamed as a result of the virus, you can develop weakness of that side of the face, you can develop lesions even inside the ear, difficulty with hearing, difficulty with vision, it can be inside your mouth, it can be very painful. People who have had shingles know how painful it can be. Imagine that same sort of thing happening on your face and possibly affecting the nerve that gives your face its movement. Um, it can resolve if it's treated early and it's typically treated with steroids and antiviral medications. If it's recognized early and treated early, people can resolve, but it can take a while. By the way, Jake, just quickly, it's different than Bell's palsy. With Bell's palsy, you can get similar symptoms. We don't always know what causes Bell's palsy. With this, uh, Ramsey Hunt, it's almost always that virus that causes shingles. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Manu Raju, uh, thanks uh, to both of you. Let's uh, talk about this my political uh, panel. Uh, so let me start with you. So um, one of the issues going on here is, well, first is the issue that she doesn't want to step down, and apparently her staff doesn't want her to step down, and no one in her family wants to make her step down. Um, beyond that, there is the issue of, like, well, okay, who gets the job? Mm. Uh, there is a very competitive Democratic primary going on right now in California to get that job. Uh, Adam Schiff is running, Congressman Adam Schiff. Pelosi likes him. Uh, there's Congresswoman Barbara Lee, uh, very favored by people in the San Francisco area. Uh, there is Katie uh, Porter, uh, very popular with uh, progressives. Um, and unfortunately, all of this is, is playing a role. And also, the governor of California has made a commitment also uh, to fill that slot with a black woman as well. You if, if, he get, if, he, if, if he gets the opportunity if to, If he yeah. gets the opportunity to, yes. Right now, I mean, absolutely. I mean, one, you have the question of, as you noted, is she going to step down? Is the senator going to step down? But after that, you're going to have a certain... Uh, contest here of these different sort of allegiances and relationships that have been built by these different members of Congress already to fill that seat. Um, but first, I mean, I think really the pressure is on some of these Democratic leaders uh, to base on, on whether or not they are going to talk to the senator about stepping down. Um, you talk, my colleagues reported on that story today, and they talked about how this puts Senator Schumer in a certain in a certain spot and really increases the pressure for him, especially with the uh, evidence that we have that there was one person there in, in an interview. Um, one of the senators mentioned, well, her job isn't impacted. We do know that she has a lighter schedule of, here. Of course, well. her job's impacted. Of course, her job is impacted. I mean, you have the L.A. Uh, the exchange with an L.A. Times reporter as well, where he was basically she did come off as confused and appeared to not remember some of this as well. So. Her, her job is impacted right now, and it'll be interesting to see how Democratic leaders basically respond to this report as well um, and see if they do ask her to step I, I've heard Democrats and Republicans say it is an absolute tragedy. This is what she's going to be remembered for and not her trailblazing career. Absolutely. And you've heard that for years. That has really been a concern for those around her, for her staff, that this is really going to lead a potential obituary one day instead of all of these things that she's been able to do. And I will add one other pressure point, I think, for Democratic leaders, especially Schumer, is just look at how narrow that margin is in the Senate. One if vote. Literally one vote. So even if she were to step aside, that makes everything way more difficult. And we are looking at the debt ceiling, government funding, so many more different things. And I will say, completely different situation. But even on the House side, you see it with the pressure for Kevin McCarthy. He doesn't want to get rid of George Santos. Totally different situation. 
that the margins really matter to these leaders and really motivates them. Let's turn to the Florida situation. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, obviously has been in a feud with Disney. Um, How do you interpret what happened today? Obviously, lots of Democrats are saying, well, you heard Nikki um, Freed, the the Democratic uh, uh, leader there in Florida, saying this is because uh, DeSantis has uh, these temper tantrums against Disney. He can't control himself. Um, I mean, that's a lot of jobs. A billion dollars and 2,000 jobs is a lot to lose. Definitely. And I think DeSantis has built this brand of being a culture warrior. But this fight in particular, I think, is kind of a swing and a miss. Um, considering now it's actually having consequences with 2,000 jobs in the state of Florida moving. And that's a big deal that's impacting people's lives and their livelihood. And I think people would rather see him focus on the everyday issues impacting them the most rather than kind of picking this fight with Mickey Mouse. There's something interesting going on uh, also, this proxy battle uh, in the Trump versus DeSantis. Trump obviously slamming DeSantis today for this Disney move. Um, Trump's pick in the Kentucky governor's race, Daniel Cameron, the attorney general, defeated DeSantis's back candidate. Um, Cameron then took a swipe at the Florida governor in his victory speech over recent comments DeSantis made. Uh, DeSantis talking about how Trump, uh, not using the name, but basically suggesting Trump's a loser uh, in terms of electoral uh, victories. Um, first, this is what DeSantis said last week. We must reject the culture of losing that has infected our party in recent years. The time for excuses is over. An allusion to Trump uh, presiding over the loss of uh, seats in 2018, losing in 2020, and then obviously 2022, a lot of his candidates uh, losing. This was uh, Trump-backed Attorney General Daniel Cameron on Tuesday. Let me just say, the Trump culture of winning is alive and well in Kentucky. What do you think? Well, I think this is not going to be the last of what we've seen of Trump going after DeSantis for endorsements, whether these are, you know, as, as people have mentioned, some of these are overlapping endorsements. But I think that um, Ron DeSantis will continually be put in this position to have to answer for who he endorsed, whether that person won. Um, and it's something that I think that his team is trying to think through. And they're not taking lightly. They're try- you saw that they were um, putting forward Florida Um, endorsements that they had. But I think we can expect that in the future, every time that we go through different people that Donald Trump has endorsed, he will call this out and he will make this a part of the campaign. I would like to say on the Daniel Cameron endorsement, I think he's a rock star and um, the future of the Republican Party. So I was happy to see him come out successful of that primary in Kentucky. But what is kind of interesting is that Daniel Cameron is a former staffer for Mitch McConnell. He's a McConnell loyalist, too. So I think it is kind of funny, particularly on this endorsement, to see Team Trump touting it as a win, considering he's the establishment candidate. And Trump prides himself in being anti-establishment. And so I just thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic with that endorsement. You know, it's funny also. So um, there's this article in Newsweek uh, uh, suggesting um, that DeSantis backs a lot of losers. Uh, this is, you know, he, his, his candidate for mayor of Jacksonville mm-hmm. lost. And, and Trump is pushing this article uh, on Truth Social, uh, on, in press releases. Um, There's this list of 16 candidates DeSantis endorsed. But if you look at the list, 11 of the 16 Trump also endorsed and, in fact, was a much more prominent endorser of uh, Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Carrie Lake in Arizona, Herschel Walker. Trump basically picked Herschel Walker. I mean, it is bizarre for Trump to push this 
Uh, it's like, look, this guy backs losers. You, you backed 11 of the 16 losers yourself. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like it was just months ago after the midterms we were having this same conversation about whether Trump's support and his endorsements really carried value here. Um, I'm not sure that a certain level of hypocrisy has ever factored in, though, when it comes to <laughs> Trump, you know, criticizing some of these officials. But it is interesting that you also have this moment where DeSantis does seem to actually start uh, he's starting to actually point at Trump directly. I mean, even in Iowa, you saw this um, on a call where he seems to be foreshadowing an announcement as well. Um, he talked about how voters uh, uh, tend to support Trump policies, but maybe not necessarily the values. I'll be watching to see how he walks that fine line going forward. Let's see if he uses the name Trump. Yeah, that will right. be a, that will be a first. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, the findings have been released from a Navy investigation of an upsending, upsetting trend at naval facilities. And then police just released the body cam video from that deadly mass shooting in New Mexico where the gunman targeted homes and cars. Stay with us. And we're back with our health lead, the U.S. Navy today admitting failure in a new report. Since last April, there have been at least seven military suicides at naval facilities in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Three on board the USS George Washington within the same week and four in a month at the Navy's Mid-Atlantic Regional Maintenance Center. Now the U.S. Navy is releasing the results of a months-long investigation into these deaths, and CNN's Oren Lieberman joins me live to discuss. Oren, what's the big takeaway from the report? Jake, after going through this report, there's no individual or group of individuals or commanders who are held responsible for the conditions that contributed to the number of suicides you just mentioned. Three on board the crew or of the crew of the U.S. George Washington while it was going through refit at a shipyard back in April, and then four more at the same facility in Norfolk, Virginia in December. The Navy found there was no connection or correlation between this group of suicides. But there's a much bigger issue at stake here, and that's where the Navy acknowledges it failed to provide sailors particularly in shipyards, but elsewhere as well, with what it calls quality of service. That's quality of life plus the work experience. It degraded over years, if not decades, and the Navy simply failed to address it until it was essentially hit with this series of suicides and had no choice but to address it. On top of that, the Navy failed to provide the necessary mental health resources. The Navy did acknowledge its own failure. Admiral Darrell Cottle, the uh, commander of Fleet Forces Command, said this. He said, it was pointedly obvious that the Navy had failed the George Washington through a host of things that we put that ship into. So there is certainly an acknowledgement of a failure here. The question, of course what to do about it. And that's where the Navy's goal here from the secretary as well as the chief of the Navy is to institute and determine a basic quality of service, a quality of life to offer sailors first at shipyards and then expand that to the whole fleet, as well as making sure there are the mental health resources available. In addition, Jake, they point out that sailors should not spend their entire first term on board a ship that's not at sea stuck in a shipyard. That has its own host of problems. They believe, and they'll try to make this happen, that sailors should have the opportunity to do what they're supposed to do, and that's be out at sea. Warren, what, what are families who have lost loved ones to suicide while they were serving in the Navy? What, what do they have to say about this report? Jake, you and I have talked several times about the Brandon Act, and that's named after 21-year-old Brandon Caserta, who took his life back in 2018, 
Also in Norfolk, coincidentally, his parents, the Casertas, essentially went after the Navy and got the Brandon Act passed a, a couple of years ago, and that was to demand mental health resources. But it was delayed until it was signed just earlier this month, that delay lasting for more than a year. But this is exactly what they were going after. Listen to what their son was going through and why they felt this was important. He said, I'm depressed. They said, suck it up and get back to work. And you can't have that. That's not how you deal with that. His letter led us to this. He wanted us to do something about suicide and the toxicity that happens in our military system. A lot of this is an effort to simply address the same issue, the mental health of not only sailors but service members and Jake all of this is getting after that. Of course, the challenge is it requires more resources, more money. Orrin Lieberman, thanks so much. Uh, and if you or anyone you care about is struggling, there is help. There is help for you. There is love for you. Please call or text 988. Call or text 988. Coming up next, uh, a closer look at the first state to ban TikTok from the phones of everyone. And a look at how that would even be enforced. In our tech lead today, Montana has become the very first state in the U.S. to ban TikTok outright. The state's governor, Greg Gianforte, signed the ban into law last night. He said it will protect Montanans' private data from the Chinese Communist Party. But, as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, the ACLU is already arguing this is a blatant violation of the First Amendment. My money don't jiggle, jiggle. It folds. I'd like to see you wiggle, wiggle. Nearly half the country, 150 million Americans, turn to TikTok for inspiration, information, and entertainment. But now Montana is turning it off, banning the app and potentially slapping $10,000 a day fines on app stores making it available. The governor says with TikTok owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance, the ban is to protect Montanans' personal and private data from the Chinese Communist Party. TikTok is pushing back, saying the Chinese government is neither a partner nor party to information in the app. To be clear, there's never been any evidence, never any proof about any kind of information sharing. We've steadfastly denied that. Yet Big Sky Country is not alone. More than half of U.S. states have put some restriction on TikTok. For example, by banning it on government devices. Many are talking about taking it further. And some federal lawmakers are also up in arms. The Chinese Communist Party is engaged in psychological warfare through TikTok to deliberately influence U.S. children. The chief fear is that the app could serve as a gateway to peddling anti-American ideas, meddling in elections, and spying. Again, TikTok disagrees. We will firewall protected U.S. data from unwanted foreign access. TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. Some suggest worries about TikTok are overblown. It poses about the same threat that companies like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter pose. And free speech advocates see a big court battle brewing. The ban is blatantly unconstitutional. It's an act of political theater. It is rooted in xenophobia and it is trampling on the free speech rights of hundreds of thousands of people in Montana. 
Unless a court steps in, Montana's ban will go into effect next January, and it contains no provisions for punishing individual users, only companies providing access to TikTok. Still, tech folks say enforcing this ban could prove difficult, in part because the United States doesn't really have a framework for this kind of stepping on the Internet, like, say, for example, China. It's difficult to see how it's constitutional. I mean, and, diffi- and difficult to see technologically how you do it. Yeah. I should note, by the way, just because I've been outspoken about this on the show, I have reinstated TikTok on a burner phone. I, I do take the national security concerns seriously about China, the Chinese government having access. So I bought a burner phone. And I have TikTok on it. And your dance videos are very popular. <laughs> there are no dance videos. That's fake news. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. He's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee and, as well, the Cybersecurity Caucus. Senator, good to, good to see you again. You just heard from CNN's Tom Foreman reporting on Montana Governor Greg Gianforte passing this law that will ban TikTok from operating within the state of Montana. The ACLU responds to the ban saying it has, quote, trampled on the free speech of hundreds of thousands of Montanans who use the app to express themselves, gather information, and run their small business in the name of anti-Chinese sentiment. We will never trade our First Amendment rights for cheap political points, unquote. Now, you have called for a nationwide ban on TikTok. How is that constitutional? Well, Jake, I think the concern I have is a national security concern, as you were describing, that comes from the work that I've done on the Intelligence Committee. The fact that there are 120 million Americans or so that spend a month on TikTok every single year, that whenever TikTok wants to use its algorithms to have a completely different news feed on Hong Kong or on the Uyghurs or on Taiwan or anything else, they can do it. I think that puts us in a horrible position with respect uh, to to Beijing's uh, use of that technology. We're going to obviously have a debate about the First Amendment uh, issues that are at work here. We should have that debate. That's not a reason to not have a conversation about whether it's a great idea for Beijing to beam, to beam this, this technology into, the, into America or among the American people. And I'll say beyond that, I just want to be very clear about this, that I feel extremely strongly that we should be regulating the large American digital pl- you know, platforms, which we haven't done. And our poor kids in this country who have had to rely basically on their student councils to do those negotiations need somebody who's going to stand up and negotiate with Zuckerberg and the rest of these guys on our privacy rights, on our economic uh, interests, and on the civil liberties in this country. We haven't done that either. So I don't want to stop just because the ACLU says this is a bad idea in a press release. I think we need to have this debate in our country. And I particularly think we need to do it for the national security issues that are at stake and because our kids' mental health have been affected in a profoundly negative way by a decade of completely unregulated social media, whether it's coming from, tic- from Beijing or it's coming from Northern California. That, doesn't, that particularly part of it doesn't matter to me. So, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you that uh, your colleagues uh, are rather weak in terms of their willingness to make uh, basic demands of social media companies uh, in terms of disclosure, uh, of sharing data, in terms of, of uh, transparency, 
why? Why is Congress so weak? Let's exempt you from my criticism. Why well, you can you can you can throw me in your criticism. Okay, fine. Why are you all so weak? It's all these fancy yeah. marble pillars. Yeah, no, but why are you all so weak? Is it just because it, they, they it, give so much money? Like no, why won't you regulate? No, I don't think that's the reason. I think it's because we move at this at a snail's pace. We move at a glacial pace. This is why I believe, and I've said this for years now, we've just reintroduced this bill actually today that we should have a new federal agency in Washington, like the Federal Communications Commission, like the Food and Drug Administration, staffed by experts who can help not just get the data you're pointing to, which is so important, yeah, because, because we don't have the data to make the kind of assessments that need to be made that in any other era we'd have for a consumer agency, but in my view, to help us make the judgments about whether we want to accept, and I don't, these algorithms to addict our kids to social media. So we are slow to act. We are painfully slow to act. I think there's a consensus emerging now around the advent of, of, of AI that is, is, show, is, is calling the question on Washington and on the American people. And I believe, you know, we're going to move past this daily discussion about TikTok and into a world where, where we're saying, what do we have to do to protect yeah. our democracy? So what I, do we have to do to make sure the American people's privacy rights are protected and to make sure that we put the American people into a negotiation with, you know, Zuckerberg and the rest of these guys about what the economics ought to actually be? Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I know you want to talk about the fact that Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama is currently blocking about 200 military promotions from going through flag officers, generals, colonels, admirals. He's saying he's not going to support them until there's a floor vote on a Pentagon policy uh, that allows um, individual service members to be reimbursed uh, for their own travel and time off or their dependents to get abortions if they're in a state uh, where they can't uh, get one. Um, Is this affecting national security, do you think? I mean, all these promotions not going through? It, it's staggering. Look, see, you don't have to take my word for it. Seven former secretaries of defense, Republicans and Democrats, wrote a letter last week saying Senator Tuberville's hold, which is on all, all flag officers' promotions in the DOD, is hurting our readiness. It's hurting our national defense. And, and why is he doing it? He's doing it because in the wake of the first constitutional right being stripped from the American people in our history since Reconstruction, a women's right to choose, the Department of Defense is trying to make it a little less miserable for people that are serving in DOD who have not picked to serve, for example, in Alabama where abortion is banned, no exceptions for rape or incest, where if you're a doctor who's performing an abortion, you could go to jail for 99 years. What the DOD is saying is under those circumstances, we'll actually allow you to travel, we'll allow you to get paid. Will yeah. allow you to take paid leave. And Tommy Tuberville is saying, I'm so mad about that that I'm going to do something no senator has done in the history of America, which is hold up 230 flag officers that are waiting for their appointments to, 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 to post all over the globe, all over the world. This is extreme substantively because his position is way out of whack with where America is on the issue of a woman's right to choose, but he's also chosen a procedural mechanism that is compromising, seriously compromising 
the readiness of our armed forces. Senator Michael Bennett, Colorado. Good to Thanks see you, sir. Thank me. you so Good much. To see you. Thanks, Police just Jake. released body cam video from a deadly mass shooting in New Mexico where the gunman used three different guns, all of them legally purchased. That's next. Just into CNN body camera footage from yet another indiscriminate mass shooting in the United States of America. The video you're about to see, I'm warning you now. It's disturbing. It shows the moment a police sergeant in northern New Mexico was shot after responding to the scene. That was Monday in Farmington, New Mexico, after an 18-year-old high schooler shot nine people in his neighborhood. Let's get right to CNN's Josh Campbell. Josh, walk us through what we're seeing in this video. Yeah, Jake, so the police there in Farmington just wrapped up a press conference. The chief described this as a, quote, assault on our community after this 18-year-old opened fire indiscriminately, uh, shooting nine people, three of them fatally. Now, police walked us through and said basically the first victim, who was 79-year-old Shirley Voida, she's driving through this neighborhood. Uh, the suspect opens fire. Two other elderly women drive up. Police say they attempt to render first aid. They are also fatally shot. And the suspect just continues on this rampage. I'm about to show you the final moments of this incident. Again, I'll warn our viewers that this is graphic. This is the police uh, forming this contact team going to confront the shooter, ultimately taking him down. Watch. Now, in that exchange of gunfire, two of those officers were among those who were injured. Police say that they are still working to uh, uh, indicate a motive in this investigation. They say that this 18-year-old suspect uh, purchased one of these weapons, an AR-15, just a month after his 18th birthday. He apparently had an arsenal of weapons inside of his home. I just asked the police chief a short time ago if any of the family members uh, may face potential criminal liability, particularly because this suspect was apparently known to have mental health issues. The police chief said that is certainly a possibility as their investigation continues. And of course, as that investigation continues, yet another American community, Jake, is mourning after a suspect opened fire indiscriminately with an AR-15. Jake. Josh Campbell, thank you so much. Coming up, uh, the Supreme Court weighing in on one of the most impactful art controversies in years. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled today that this series of silk screens created by the late Andy Warhol based on a photograph of the singer Prince infringed on a photographer's copyright. The 7-2 decision upends the so-called fair use doctrine that permits the unlicensed use of copyrighted works in certain circumstances. Joining us now to discuss, University of Michigan Law School professor and media and intellectual property attorney, Paul Schinnell. Um, Professor Schinnell, thanks for joining us. You wrote an article for The Atlantic last year uh, warning that a Supreme Court decision against strong fair use protections could wreck American art. Is that what you think happened today? Uh, so, you know, the good news is I don't think it's quite as extreme as that. I think the, the court very deliberately uh, limited its focus to a very specific aspect of the argument. And so, uh, and kind of deliberately bypassed that deeper question about whether Andy Warhol actually infringed on Lynn Goldsmith's copyright uh, by virtue of doing what he did. Uh, so the results are not quite as extreme as I think a lot of people uh, in the creative community were worried about. 
Uh, but it, they're still problematic, you know. But but do I think do I think fair use has been upended? No, uh, but it is it is troubling, and 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 you know it sets a sort of dangerous precedent. One of the concerns you expressed in your article was that um, the Supreme Court could prevent their ruling could prevent artists from having the basic building blocks to create their own original work. Uh, explain that for us, and and whether or not you think it does, sounds like you don't think that happened here. But but explain the argument. Well, so, yeah, so the big, I mean, I think everyone today is aware of more or less, you know, how copyright works. And so, uh, you know, generally it gives you a set of property rights that are sort of akin to, to owning a house. You get to control what people do with your copyrighted work. And fair use is an exception to that. Under certain circumstances, all of us can take copyrighted work and use it, you know. So uh, a good example of that, for instance, is a search engine. You know, if you, if you, I haven't done it, but probably if you search for Prince Warhol photo, you'll see both, you know, the original photo and you'll see uh, Warhol's work and, and, you know, you'll see the thumbnails. That's fair use, right? Because those thumbnails are not replacing the original work. They're, they make the original work accessible on the internet. They make it easy for people to find content. So that's an example of fair use. Um, and in some cases, um, uh, you know, fair use allows creators to take existing copyrighted work and incorporate it into their new work. And so when, I, when I'm talking about sort of building blocks, uh, you know, nothing is done in a vacuum. If you're creating something, you're using existing materials. If some of those materials end up are copyrighted, the question becomes, how can you incorporate them into your work? The cleanest, easiest way to do it is to ask for permission, but that's very expensive a lot of the time. You know, in this case, it's kind of set up as a David and Goliath sort of scenario where there's, you know, a poor artist on the one hand, you know, starving artist stereotype, and then a big foundation with a lot of money. But fair use is actually something that that really the, the proverbial little guy really needs, right? Because uh, I work with filmmakers all the time. And it's very expensive to license stuff from networks. Uh, and a lot of the time, you know, the production companies can't afford it if it's small indie film. And so they have to rely on fair use. And if you kind of tighten fair use to a point where it you know becomes so narrow that filmmakers and creators in general can't rely on it, then the only other option is spending money. And if you don't have that money, that speech preemptively goes away, and that's the cultural harm. Yeah. Paul Chanel, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your expertise. Appreciate it very much. Cheers. Coming up in our sports lead, a big announcement from tennis star, tennis superstar, Rafael Nadal. Then, of course, Wolf Blitzer is getting ready in the Situation Room. Wolf, who are you talking to tonight? Yes, tonight is the youngest member of Congress, a Democratic representative, Maxwell Frost of Florida. He's only 26 years old. I'll ask uh, I'll ask him about his concerns over efforts to crack down on TikTok, which Montana, as you know, just banned throughout the state, even on personal devices. I'll also get his thoughts on the feud between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney, which is apparently costing his home state thousands of jobs after Disney pulled the plug on a major $1 billion project. All of that much more coming up right here in the Situation Room at the top of the hour. In our sports lead, tennis superstar Rafael Nadal announced today that for the first time since 2005, he is not going to play in the French Open. The 22-time Grand Slam champion suffered a hip injury at the Australian Open in January. Initially, Nadal had hoped to be back on the court within eight weeks, but in an Instagram post today, Nadal said that his recovery was unfortunately taking longer than anticipated and he will be out for the next few months. That means the 36-year-old could also possibly miss Wimbledon in July, Nadal also noted he wants to be in peak performance next year, which could be the last of his professional career. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite. And I'm back on TikTok now so on a burner phone. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. You can also follow me uh, on Instagram. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to the lead wherever you get your podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.